You are listening to Faith and Fleshed, the official podcast of Humana Corpus Dignitate. Hello, everyone. This is Carlos. This is Angel. And welcome to our second HCD podcast. This one is actually going to be a topic that is near and dear to both of us on a very personal level. It's going to be about autism. And I'd like to start by reading a scripture passage from the Gospel of John. And then we're both going to offer some reflections on this passage in relation to autism. So from John chapter 9, verses 2 through 3, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so the works of God might be made visible through him. This was a very important statement by Jesus because of the fact that at the time he was ministering to his people, it was believed that physical ailments and other diseases or or such were the result of sin rather than just understanding it's part of the broken world that we live in. And unfortunately, this idea to a certain degree still exists in the world because A lot of times people look at children and what they have or don't have and see it as a reflection more on themselves. Um, As a teacher, as a, you know, a high school teacher for, you know, close to 25 years now, I've had the privilege and I'll go as far as saying the challenge of having to deal with some of these parents who focus more on their status and their social circles and, and, and apply that to their children's performance rather than looking at what's most important about parenting is the needs of your child. For example, um, my father was also a teacher. He was a very successful teacher as well. And um, I told my mother on, on several occasions, I, on my best day, could never be as good as he was. And I have my reasons for believing that. And that's just another thing altogether. But Um, My father, for example, was a highly educated man. He had a PhD, three master's degrees and his bachelor's degree. And it seemed like every possible teaching credential you can possibly, you can get me on the other hand, I do have three college degrees and I do have a graduate degree. I do not have a PhD and I have never felt inadequate to my father. My father never made me feel like I was never rising to his expectations. He was always more focused on me as a person and my character and my faith journey than he was on whether or not I was top of my class in terms of GPA, because he looked at what I did well and looked at what I struggled with and didn't, he didn't make it all about numbers. And I think for a lot of parents, the, um, when it comes to their kids, their children's success somehow defines them where it's not about you, it's about the child. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, I have two kids, I and I'm very proud of both of them. They're both a wonderful human beings. I mean, I, I've i said it to a million people that my kids are better people than I'll ever be. And I've never had a problem sharing the fact that my oldest child, my son, is autistic. And some people that have children with some form of a, some kind of disability, they tend to almost be ashamed of it or they kind of don't want to talk about it. 
And again, it's not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about the child. You, you got to think more about what are the challenges that they deal with that you as a parent have never dealt with. And of course, you as a parent, it is your job to learn about not only the condition they have, but how the condition affects them directly and personally and help walk them through their lives. By the same token, there is also that issue of blaming yourself. And I actually went through this about a month and a half ago. Um, my oldest son was diagnosed with autism about three years ago. So I was hypersensitive to a lot of his symptoms. And so when my youngers, with my younger son, I started seeing some of the same rigidity, things like that. And then we put him in TK and his teacher said he's he was struggling. And she asked me, she said, did you ever get him um, evaluated the same way you did your older son? Because she had my older son um, for a student. And it was that moment of, I had this feeling for months to get him evaluated, maybe even a year, I think. Um, and then, but he didn't show as quote unquote severe symptoms, I guess you could say as my older son. So I was not in denial, but I also didn't want to jump the gun and just think that I'm just thinking that because the older one had it. But when the teacher came to me and said, have you gotten him evaluated? I had this moment of, oh my God, there's two of them. And a lot of it was like, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong as a mom? And it was that one and it was one of those moments where I had to pull out and remind myself that everyone's different um, and that it's not necessarily anything I did. Some of it could just be personality and that's what it is. And so we would just have to deal with that. Um, so, but there is that, you know, one, not just looking at your kid's success and my kid's success is my success, but also when they're not successful, feeling like it's all on you. So basically making it about yourself and it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be about them. So um, what we're going to do right now is Angel's going to sort of give us a brief definition and a few statistics on autism. So according to the CDC, autism spectrum disorder is a developmental disability that can cause significant social communication and behavioral changes. We have to remember that this is a spectrum. So there's a huge range as far as what kind of challenges each child could have. And some are known to be super smart and very gifted where others can actually have more severe learning disabilities. So in the past, there was Asperger's or autistic disorder. They group everything together now. There are levels to how severe they could be. Uh, Carlos's son, Jabril, and my son, James, are both high-functioning autism, but they do have to meet certain DSM-5 criteria, which is the diagnostic criteria by the American Psychological Association. Um, according to the CDC, their last report is that 1 in 59 children at the age of 8 and above meet the criteria for autism spectrum disorder, but they do start to show symptoms at an earlier age. And actually one of the DSM-5 criteria is that they show symptoms at, a, at the earliest developmental ages. Um, it is four times more common in boys than in girls, and it has a 1-2% to 2 prevalence rate in Asia, Europe, and North America. 
the good thing about this is um, I'm noticing that um, our society has responded more to autism. A um, couple things I want to bring up, just socially speaking, our, our president recently um, signed a bill to add more funding to autism research, which of course has been highly applauded by advocates of autism. And there have actually been some celebrities who have openly stated that they have autistic kids and they're of course advocates for autism. Um, as a teacher, when I talk about my experience with autism, because it does come up when I teach morality and, you know, especially when it comes to right to life issues, because of the fact that there's so many societies who right away want to rid the, their world of people with disabilities. I'm noticing a lot of the kids are a lot more open to it. I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of adults my age and older who sometimes just think an autistic child needs a good spanking and that's not the answer because they obviously don't understand that these people process differently. But the reality was that when I'm saying that society is responding more to autism, that obviously has to include churches. You know, there have been some church leaders who say that a lot of people with, you know, mental issues or disabilities go to churches for assistance because, you know, our, our um, government agencies are still lacking the resources to help them. But the good thing is that, um, like, for example, the University of Dayton, who has an online um, catechetical program, actually has a program to assist people in the world of ministry who deal with people with disabilities. So and that's pretty much all everyone in, in all the parishes, because, you know, we've always had different um, people with different disabilities going to mass. Um, the uh, Archdiocese of Philadelphia actually has a special education program. And in last viewing their website, I believe they might even have a few schools for special ed kids, which to me is just amazing. And it's such a blessing because for so many years, Catholic schools were extremely sympathetic to parents would say, look, we can't help you because we don't have those type of, of teachers available. Now at my school, for example, and of course, lots of um, Catholic schools, they do have a resource teacher who helps kids with whether it's learning disabilities or they're very you know cognizant of people with other types of uh, disability. So that's good too. And we're actually, if you Google it, you'll see a lot of Catholic parishes do in fact have a ministry for people with disabilities. So the church is slowly responding to um, its the members of its flock that have these things. And, and because, you know, that, that we want them to also be able to experience the, um, you know, the faith of our, of our, of our Lord and, and to be able to, you know, participate in mass and, and, and understand what's going on, not just being taken to mass and, and taken to other festivities we have at our parishes and just have to sit there and maybe wonder what's going on. And plus this is actually following the lead of our Lord, because, you know, when you see like, for example, the gospel story of in Mark chapter three, where he encounters the, the possessed man who is living in the, in the, the, um, cemetery, um, you know, one of the things it says is even though he's possessed is that he, you know, saw that the man was not well and he had pity on him. So obviously, you know, and you and I would, of course, attest to this from having autistic kids is you can really see the struggle that they're going through. So in other words, we shouldn't worry about the reason for the struggle that a person has. We should be ministering to whoever is coming into our churches, regardless of their struggle. I mean, it, why should it matter if they're autistic or just having like a spiritual crisis or a family issue, all of those are important and all of them need to be addressed 
with the love that Jesus teaches us to love our neighbor in the gospel. So the thing about our journeys with autism was that it wasn't a journey either of us had taken alone. We actually each shared this journey with our spouses. Um, So we thought it was really important for them to be able to give their perspective. So we decided to sit down with each of our spouses and basically interview them and get get their perspectives. Uh, They do have two completely different insights because my husband, Henry, has never really been around children. He's in the food business. Uh, so our kids were actually his first real encounter of helping to rear a child and watch them develop, whereas Min has been an educator for several years now, and she was actually a, um elementary school teacher and is now a principal. So she's actually had to deal with the children with developmental delays and learning disabilities. And so she has a completely different insight. So we're actually going to go ahead and take a listen to those conversations now. So here are Carlos and Henry. So what made you get James tested? I think um, it was his rigidity that got me kind of um, concerned where there was a lot of breakdowns and he needed to do something a certain way. And that was a concern because it was it was hard really dealing with it. Okay. Did you have any possible assumptions of what it might have been before you had him tested? Not at all. Not not for me. I mean, I thought he was a kid and I think kids, you know, act differently. But, you know, I never had experience with having children or having or even um, trying to raise one or being around one being raised or not really dealing with it at that intimate level. How did you feel before you found out um, his diagnosis that he was autistic? I mean, I, I was open. I mean, I, I, had, I had an open mind, you know, but, you know, hearing, you know, other people, you know, questioning why we're doing things and questioning why we did this or did that or why we're putting him through this. You know, obviously there was a lot of that question, but I, I, I kept an open mind. I thought, I thought, hey, um, let's see what they actually come back with, and 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 see what program he can get on, and and see what we can do to help him, and see if it actually helps. Yeah, I'm noticing that um, it's because well, it is becoming more common now, but um, it's just a lot of people our age had really not they heard of it, but they weren't really familiar with it, so. I guess no, the commonality is what's really getting it out there. I, I think it's more, uh, it, it's more, um, it's more upfront. I, I think that you know, society that we have right now, it's about instant information. So it's it's more information is out there. Whereas even myself growing up, I mean, we didn't really think of that. I mean, it, even if we saw somebody that might have been that might have had an issue or whether slight or not we we didn't think of it in that way so but now it's all over the place so now it's like oh maybe you should get this done or get that done you know and it's everything is instant so i think that's what you know bringing it up front now that's a really good point because i remember with my son um as soon as there was some suspicion as soon as he was tested I jumped on Google right away and just looked up whatever I could. And I didn't have a lot of experience either with, with knowing a little bit about it. 
but I, you know, I've just heard of it, but you're right about the fact that everything's so out there now. Everyone wants information right now. So that could be the thing that what reason why we're more open to it. So that's a good point. How did you feel after he was diagnosed? No, of course I was concerned. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was, yeah, you know, there's something wrong with him. You know, that, that those kind of things gets questioned. Did I do anything wrong that caused them this? Of course, th- those are those are those are the things that that um, that 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 you you know reflect on yourself, where you're saying, did I cause it? Did I help, or did I make it worse? You know, I mean, that that's that's what I was thinking when 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 I first found out. So what are you thinking in terms of future? Because, you know, I know James is a lot younger than my son. And, and I know with Jabril, he was fourth, fifth grade when he was officially diagnosed. So I had some of those, you know, like you were saying, concerns. And, you know, obviously him going into middle school and going into high school. Um, and, you know, luckily he's been doing really well. So that's been a blessing. But like what would be some of your concerns for like the next, say, 10 years for James? Social awkwardness. It's the only concern. Okay. Hmm. Um, in terms of like, do you think he's de- like de- not communicating? Go ahead. Dealing with his peers. I mean, he has a hard time. Um, he ha- he has a hard time fitting in. You 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 can see it. Even his own relatives. You know, mm-hmm. he has a hard time. Um, he tries and he wants to, but you know, there's certain um there there's certain behavioral rigidity patterns that that he can't break out of in order for him to adapt to these other kids um i i see that he's a follower and and so if if there's a kid that that lets him follow he attaches himself to that kid so i i that that's very very concerning to me you know i mean okay. gro- growing up those are the people that get bullied that's true. Um, when I want to focus right now on, on, you said the relatives. How aware are they of James's uh, condition? I know his grandparents are aware. Um, I think, um, you know, my wife's cousins are aware because she openly talked about that. So it's actually their kids that are the generation that James is dealing with. But you know, you you can't. That's not something that the parents talk about to their kids. So you you just got to kind of see how that interaction happens. Do you ever, because um, obviously you don't want to show up somewhere and just throw something out. Because like, for example, I've, I've had experiences with my son where, um, you know, he's going to be very withdrawn. He's going to kind of keep to himself and he's gotten better now. But when he was younger, he may kind of sit there. And if someone said hello, he may not react. So you know, I would kind of have to openly tell people, well, he's autistic and he's just not really going to say anything. Is that something that you and, and Angel are doing or do you just kind of let people sort of fill him out and then kind of maybe ask questions? Like, how do you guys approach that? Right now, we're just feeling it out. I, I mean, we're not we're not saying, hey, treat him special because he's this. He has needs. No, mm-hmm. we're not we're not we're not bringing that up right now. Because I think he's functioning enough to be able to, to be around kids. I, I think, and and you know he he can have fun and and play with them. I I, I just think that it's more, it, it, it's more just kind of, um, fitting in, 
you know, because his way of fitting in is a certain way and the other kids don't really like his way of fitting in. And, and so that that's what he it needs to be able to adapt to. And adapting for him is very, very difficult. Yeah, it's interesting because Angel will tell me things about him and you know Jabril, I would tell her, and, and I know that we've seen a lot of similarities. And, you know, when she's talked about how James does that, I find that interesting because my son tends to, he he's fine with withdrawing. He he likes to be on his own, even at school. I mean, he's engaging other kids more now, certain kids that he feels comfortable with, but lunchtime or whatever, he still prefers to just be left alone. And I know that sometimes my wife and myself, we still kind of look at it and maybe we're projecting ourselves on him more than looking at him and what he likes to do, but he's comfortable with being left alone. But I know James is more social. And so I wanted to get to where I know he had gone to some therapy when he was first diagnosed. So I wanted to ask you, what were some of the benefits you saw? Like, where was he when he started therapy? And then like, how did he, how did he turn out afterwards? I, I don't I don't think it addressed anything to do with with interactions with kids at the, at that point. I think um, the therapy was mostly for coping mechanisms on things that were, you know, not the way he wants. Whether taking away toys or giving up something that he wanted to keep doing, th- those were the the I know those were the sessions that were given to him at first, uh, and then mm-hmm. and then they went into like home. And, and and try to do what we we're doing at home and, and and assess that. So that was helpful. So that we were able to to kind of lead him by using different triggers to get him out of different things. Um, and I think he they even went to school, but it it didn't really address interaction. I, I don't believe that it did. Um, and and so that's that 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 to me, you know, is is again my biggest concern. I mean, to be able to cope with certain things is good. You know, it helped a lot, you know, because he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he didn't have, you know, where he broke down because we took mm-hmm. something away, you know? Um, but I, 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 I am concerned when he tells me how come the kids don't play with me? You know, that, that, oh, yeah. that's, that's the concern that I have. I, and, 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 and you know, and, and I, I'm not, I'm not trained to deal with that. Like to me, the way I grew up, it would be like, Hey, just leave it alone. If they don't want to play with you, mm-hmm. don't play with them. You know, I'll, I'll deal with it in that way. Um, and I see my younger son do that where he'll do his own things and other kids follow him. So he's more, people will follow him. James is more of the follower. He, uh, he, he wants to follow what other people are doing. You know, and 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 his issue has always been when those the the people that he's following is is not something that is correct to him, then he tries to correct it, and those those people don't want that at all. Yeah, I understand because a lot of times the way that they think is they there's a certain way they want it, and they expect everyone to cater to them. My son has the same problem. We have to even today he's seventeen. And we sometimes have to sit him down and explain, not everyone's going to want to do what you want to do. And and he used to sometimes have breakdowns over it, or he would kind of, you see him get upset and not to say he doesn't get angry about it, but then he'll just kind of go off on his own, maybe go in his room and just do his own thing. But 
there's sometimes we still have to remind him, look, you know, your sister doesn't want to do this right now, or we don't want to watch this right now. So you need to understand that other people have things that they want to do. And of course, the big challenge is that he has to understand that, which he may not because of the way his brain works. Um, Go ahead. So is there anything that they can do to kind of, you know, adjust the brain? Is there anything that that happened? I have not heard of that. I mean, I think the one thing that I keep, I kept hearing when I, when he was diagnosed was this is how, how you think, this is how you process. And it's really a matter of just, that's how their brain works. It's like, we look at like creative people or very analytical people and that, you know, there's a way that their brain works, but it's just for some, and like the thing with him, that's been a challenge is he doesn't like to be labeled with it. He knows he has it, but like he doesn't really want to associate with that, even though it's good for him to you know use whatever resources he has. A lot of it, like you were saying earlier, was just the coping part where they just like his sessions were to teach him, you know, really those simple life skills. Or if this is how other kids are going to think or how other kids react, because sometimes I remember one time he. I think someone told him a joke and he was he might have been like in third or fourth grade or whatever, and I think he told it to another kid and then this other kid told it. And and I I don't remember all the details, but he kind of got upset because, you know, they kind of took it and ran with it and did it their own way. And it's like, well, you can't control what everyone does. If you're going to share something, they're going to, they're going to say or think or however they're going to do it. And again, that was something he had a hard time understanding because it was like, I guess for him, it was his thing. And and then someone else took it and kind of reinterpreted it or saw it a different way. And it, it was difficult. So, a lot of it simply is learning to cope with how they think. And I think what I try to tell people is it's like that one relative we had that, you know, that little thing will set them off and everyone will say like, well, you know how so-and-so is going to react to this. Like, they're very temperamental. You know, we do whatever we can to interact with them. You know, even if we're walking on eggshells or candy coat, what we say, but somehow with people that just process differently, you know, we're, we seem to be less patient with them. Well, thank you. That was awesome. So before we move on into my conversation with men, I did just want to correct a few statements. Unfortunately, I was not there during the conversation with Carlos and Henry, so I was unable to do it at the time. Um, I did want to, uh, say that he did receive the social interaction. Um, he, the, he went through two types, two main types of therapy programs. The first program was more of an intensive, um, what they called inpatient therapy. And it wasn't because he slept there overnight, but because his sessions were five days a week from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. And so he would um, initially what they did was he had a one-on-one interventionist who would work with him. Um, And then eventually he would, um, once he started to meet those goals and they felt he was ready to interact, then they put him in their classroom setting, which was about six or seven kids around his age. So his own peers, Um, he did still have the therapist there one-on-one with him. And then once he had met all their goals and they were ready to discharge him, he went to an outpatient ABA uh, where he went for about two to three times a week. And he would go for about an hour and a half, maybe to two hours. Um, And once he started to meet their goals and he was able to show that he was more interactive, then they did put him in a social group at that time. Um, 
he did struggle. He did struggle with the social group. I can remember there was maybe the second or third week he had social group. I had picked him up and he was just so defiant. Anything I told him, he did the exact opposite. And it was very, very much defiant. And I couldn't figure out why. And he was throwing a tantrum. And I was like, he's not done this in a while. What's going on? Um, And then so the next time he had therapy was actually one of our in-home sessions. So we were we were doing things in clinic. And then eventually, once he started to meet the in-clinic goals, they did do in-home sessions uh, with us where they would come to our house and basically do a lot of, you know, create scenarios, create adverse scenarios for them. Um, And that type of thing would be where if he only built his blocks a certain way or put certain things a certain way, then they would change it on him, like showing him it's okay to get that change. It's okay to lose, things like that. So he did receive that. Um, uh, But when I talked to the interventionist and the therapist about, hey, you know, um, he was throwing a tantrum that day and he was very defiant. They said, oh, that was the day he had social group. I said, oh, okay." So it was just it was too much stimulation, too much. um, He couldn't feel like he was in any kind of control because there was about maybe four or five other boys. And I think a couple of them maybe had been even a year or two older, which, you know, when you're talking about children, that's a big gap um, as far as their maturity is. Uh, The other thing that I wanted to iterate was, you know, he, it's been a few years since James was in therapy. So it's a little bit difficult to remember um, everything that he had gone through at that time in detail. But I I did realize, you know, it is going to be a lifelong struggle. And as children age, they're met with different types of challenges, different types of interactions, different types of conversations, Um, you know, they're they're different in maturity and things like that. So it is going to be a lifelong struggle and it is going to be a roller coaster ride. So um, that is going to be something that we're going to have to keep reassessing. And maybe, you know, he's at the point where he does need another therapy session. So Um, And I am in the process of trying to evaluate that and distinguish that and talking to his therapist, or I mean, I'm sorry, his pediatrician. It is going to be a lifelong commitment to try to make sure that we do what is best for him. So now we're going to go into my conversation that I had with Min. All right. So we're here with Min, Carlos's wife, and we're going to talk about um, their experience with their son, with their oldest son, Jabril, who is, how old is he now? He'll be 17 on Wednesday. 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 I'm taking Halloween. Sorry. I'm not, he's going to be 17 this week. Okay. So um, we're obviously recording this week of Halloween, even yes. though this is probably going to get recorded, released after. How old was Jabril when you got him tested and diagnosed? He was in the fourth grade. Um, I kind of had an inkling in terms of his first in speech when he was in preschool. He was about three and a half, four, three and a half. Um, But I wasn't sure, you know. So I went to his preschool and I requested uh, just speech uh, evaluation. evaluation. And... um, in fourth grade, it, it took a f- couple years for us to work with the district, with Tucson Unified and the teachers, a long process. Being in a Catholic school, um, 
and having your child, you know, students get evaluated, it's, it's a very long process because you have to go through a, um, in order to go through a child study process for either speech or academic, there are specific uh, steps you have to take, which could take up to a year. So that's what took so long. But he finally got, uh, uh, you know, identified, diagnosed. We took him to an outside agency first, which was recommended by the University of Arizona's exceptional ed department um, that I found on, on their campus. So that's where it started. So based off of that, he was, he got a psych evaluation for speech, um, autism, everything. I just got him, had him do a full evaluation. So he was diagnosed with uh, high functioning autism with an LD in math and speech communication, which he received services through Title I in speech uh, since he was four up to what his freshman year in high school. And then, um, and then he gets, receives tutoring, you know, for, uh, for his math. And um, so aside from his speech, because you said you decided to get him tested for other things, what other um, cues kind of hinted that there might be something more than just speech going on? I want to say there's several components. Uh, one was being really obsessed or fixed on one particular interest for a very, very long time. Even the food he would eat, he would stick to that for a couple years. <laughs> That's all he would eat. And we just thought, well, it's beyond being picky, you know. So just certain habits that he would demonstrate. Uh, also um, not uh, initiating conversation. There was, you know, uh, while he was in school, it took him four years to finally talk say something to his art teacher. He would either nod, the no eye contact whatsoever. Um, so those those certain, you know, specific indicators that would let you know, okay, there's there, there's a, a, a disconnect somewhere, you know. His writing skills and reading skills were very high because that's all he did was write and read. But in terms of conversation, he would never instigate a conversation, even with other kids, he was very imaginative. He would always like to role play. He would like to. He he would always like to dress up and pretend to be certain characters, his favorite character, and that was something that he was into, you know, as a kid. So those are just some of the behaviors that we notice. Okay, we we really need to look into this further. Yeah. So from the time that you started getting him tested to the moment that you found out, um, was there any apprehension or anxiety that either of you felt at the time? Well, as an educator, you know, I, I was able to, I, I had students that were within the spectrum, so I know what the process is in terms of, you know, how to gather data in order to get to the point where you want to not diagnosed because I'm not a doctor, but there are indicators that you observe that might say, huh, okay, his, 
tension is not quite where it needs to be. Maybe we need to go, have them go to the pediatrician and, and, and get it checked out. I always try to, you know, divert uh, towards the pediatrician. That's a good place to start. Um, there are certain stressful components in terms of having to go through the process of evaluation. There were some moments where it was taking so long because of, you know, whatever reason that was out of our hands. The logistics or paperwork, there's a lot of, you know, certain red tape that you got to go through. But once everything was done and finalized, it was our responsibility as the parent to keep up and and uh, keep his uh, his uh, plan updated, you know. So we have to renew like his speech every th every three years. Um, so that was something that we had to keep doing, which you know it, it was fine. But in terms of how do you manage a child? You know, although he was high functioning, there were there are specific times where you just want to pull your hair out, you know, and whatever you do or say does not register, you know. Um, for example, he had Jabril has difficulties. Um, interpreting facial expressions. He doesn't know how to read them. So he assumes like if someone were to say something or to express their their facial expression sure a certain way, he would think they were angry at him or they were, you know, um, he perceives them to be a certain way when they're not, you know. So his part of his speech communication was to focus on those things. How do you read someone else's expression? Um, what does an angry face look like? What does a happy face look like or a frustrated face look like? Or when there's no facial expression, you know, he doesn't know how to read that either. He just thinks that they they are mad at him. I'm like, well, no, they're not mad. They're just neutral, <laughs> you know. So um, in terms of the therapy, so he, it sounds like, did he start speech before he got tested for autism or did the, all no. of that start at the same time? It all started at the same time. So what kind of therapy did he receive in the beginning and how did it progress? And is he still going through therapy now or is, did they, has he stopped? Well, it has helped it gradually. I mean, there are some setbacks, you know, sometimes you can take two steps forward and one step back and you have to keep going. He, he was never, um, he didn't like going, you know, he didn't think there was anything wrong with him. He didn't want to admit that there was something wrong with him, but it's not something that we, we try to tell him. It's not that there's something wrong with you. It's just that your learning and processing is different from other people. You're going to get the tools you need to help you with that because you're going to have to eventually talk to people as an adult, <laughs> you know, so we're trying to get him to understand that, you know, so it all happened at once and uh, it has helped. I would say it has. He's, his speech therapists have been very good. They've built a relationship. Um, he's no longer taking, receiving therapy for speech because he's actually doing really well. 
there are some things that he still needs to work on. Um, we're trying to really, um, I mean, is there more that we can do to give him those tools? Yes. You know, we, we, we work with the Autism Society in Tucson to get resources as well. We want to see him interact with more, with people more. I think that's something that he really needs to do, but he's just not, his level of social anxiety is preventing him from doing that. There's only, he's very selective of who he wants to be around. You know, we try to have him go out and spend time with some kids at his school and stuff, but he just doesn't, he'd rather just do be on his own. <laughs> Stay home. Yeah. Um, was there ever a period of time? Um, so uh, you and Carlos both come from multiple cultural backgrounds. Um, and we know culture can play a huge role in people's perception of autism and even other mental health issues. Um, did you ever, did you receive support from the people around you or were there struggles with that and having them accept it as well? I think I got a lot of support. Um, I think mainly I have a younger brother who, and other members on my father's side of the family, like second cousins or cousins that I've never met, that I've heard stories of that have similar, you know, um, that are similar to what Jabril's going through. So I know it was something that was hereditary. When we first found out that I was pregnant, I'm thinking, okay, there's going to be a possibility that this child's going to inherit those traits. So it wasn't a surprise to me. It was something that I kind of, okay, we'll see what happens and we'll just prepare for it. You know, when my younger brother during his time, he's six years younger than me, you know, the resources were not there. It was more difficult to identify if someone was within the spectrum or not. It, it was just considered as a mental illness versus, you know, an emo you know, whatever defines autism. So um, my parents, you know, I got their support because it was something they wished they were able to uh identify and address earlier, you know, because they really struggled with my, my youngest brother. Um, so we, we jumped at it right away as soon as we, you know, noticed some indicators, some, you know, some of those, I don't, I don't want to say symptoms, but those behaviors. Signs. Yeah, those signs. Um, so you mentioned the fact that you're an educator. Do you think being an educator helped clue you in, aside from having family history, do you think being an educator also helped clue you in to me, maybe more than somebody who has no background in education or has, you know, is surrounded by other, um, other children or any, anybody else on the spectrum? Do you think that helped? Oh, definitely. I, I, I had the resources I knew what steps to take and who to go to and what I had to do. So um, instead of having to do research, it, it was right there. I, I knew who to call and, and who to contact in order to get the process going. 
So that was very helpful. And then having to explain it to Carlos, you know, because he's not, he's as a high school teacher, they don't really handle that. They have other departments, you know, counselor that handles those things. So, you know, having to explain, well, this is what we need to do. He pretty much just said, you know what, just do it, run with it. <laughs> Whatever you need it, to do, just exactly, do it. Just do it, yeah. At what point in his therapy process did you start to see the change? And did, was it um, was it a drastic change? Was it gradual? How how long did it take once he started getting the the therapy and the help that he needed? Did you start to see the, a difference? It was gradual. Um, I would say I would start seeing a, a significant difference in by the end of his freshman year in high school. Um, it, it was really a trial and error. I mean. It, there were highs and lows every day, unpredictability. <laughs> um, I would say the process was gradual. It requires a lot of patience and learning in the process. You know, as parents, you know, I didn't, we didn't have all the tools to how to manage a child. There's you know, no manual. Emotional. There's no manual for that, you know. So every child with within the spectrum is different. You just have to, you know, exp find the right the strategy or or the approach that works the best for that child, you know. So. So, um, what advice would you actually give to parents? Um, who are maybe either suspicious or other people, some parents are not very clued in, um, especially if they're not, I mean, you're in education, I'm in the medical field in nursing, and we both receive that kind of a, you know, even just a glimpse or a background as far as what we're learning in schools. But um, what advice would you give to someone who may be, even their school is saying there might be something going on? Um, and you know, just as far as their emotional state and their mental state, how would what what advice would you give them? Well, one advice is to not immediately um, make assumptions or diagnose, right? If we're not medical professionals, however, it would not hurt to rule things out. So it wouldn't hurt to just to go have your child visit the pediatrician and um, have, you know, the child uh, checked with the, with the pediatrician. Um, there's, there's a Vanderbilt form that the pediatrician and the parent and, and the teacher uh, can, can complete and fill out if it's relevant to the behavior that has been observed. Um, but I would say don't ignore it. Do what you can to um, to get your child checked. So at least you can rule out if it's if there's nothing there. You know, it gives a, it gives you a peace of mind to say, oh, okay. Well, at least we know it's not this. Now we have a direction on how to better serve that child in it, whatever capacity that might be. There, was there ever any? push back um one of my and this is just an example i have a i have my cousin's son 
who has who was diagnosed um, a little bit later with ADHD. And one of the things what from his mom was telling me was that, you know, no matter which pediatrician he went to, because he was a boy, people were just telling him, oh, boys will be boys. So he didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until he was probably six or seven. And but the mom was suspicious of it when he was around four or five because she saw these behavioral issues. Did you ever receive any kind of pushback, even from someone in the medical field telling you, oh, just wait it out? You know, no, but I can understand why they would say that, because you also have to think of a developmental perspective, a developmental side to uh, adolescent, you know, grow. Boys are going to grow differently than girls. They're going to develop differently than girls. You know, that's why they don't do um, uh, uh, child study or, or testing for any academic um deficiency until they are in the second or third grade because they have to be allowed that time to develop. It could be a developmental. So it, in a sense, it makes sense, you know, at, at, at that age. And that's one of the reasons why with my son, when he was in preschool, I knew there were some indicators, uh, some signs, but at the same time, looking at the history and also, you know, Carlos, he didn't talk until a long time and now you can't stop him from talking. <laughs> so I figure, you know, he might, he might've inherited that, you know, he might take them some, sometimes children take longer to talk, you know, both my kids took a long time to talk. Annie didn't talk until she was three. So it just depends. I think, giving, allowing the time for the child to develop. And if you see those signs do not change at a certain age, you know, from four to six or four to five, then you might want to look into that, uh, especially within the speech, because everything else we have to, we have to kind of wait it out because of the whole developmental process and, and growth. And there was actually, um, because um, my, oldest son, James, was also diagnosed, and he was diagnosed much younger. He was two, two years old, and so the, the neurologist who evaluated him did tell me that sometimes it's not necessarily autism. It is a social delay, mm -hmm. but I did see signs with him when he was younger, and I was like, I need help. I can't, and he, he would actually throw tantrums. That was one, and I, it was every day, 10 times a day. So I said, I need help. I can't do this. I, I don't know what to do. Um, so, but they did say it could be a social delay. So right. we can't necessarily say. Well, I wanted to add that I remember when you called me about James, because you know about your girl. And I remember I told you, you're, you're a mom. You, gave, you carried this child. You gave birth to him. I said, trust what you're feeling. I saw this with my sister once. My, my nephew doesn't have any um, of those kind of issues, but he had something happened to him when he was smaller, and my sister knew something was wrong with him. She had two opinions, and she kept telling my mother, I know there's something. And again, she said, I carried this child. I gave birth to him. I know there's something wrong with him. And she got a third opinion, and they found what it was. Um, I know it's not culturally popular to some people, but for example, um, 
when you were saying about your cousin and the whole boys will be boys thing, I don't like that comment because that's kind of a very dismissive thing that we tend to use to explain boys' behavior being, I'll go as far as saying unacceptable and saying it's just part of growing up, but then girls are not allowed to give, they're not given that room. And I think that's just really bad parenting as far as dismissing one side of the of the conversation. Jabril did have some things happen where like he, he was medicated for anxiety and it did help him a bit with school, but we had a great concern because of the fact that it, one of the side effects was he wasn't eating. And the last time he was taking it, he was in a summer school science class. And when you're looking at a 14 year old boy that's not eating, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And you see him sluggish and you see him, he, he doesn't want to eat it. It made him very, the taste was just bad. So when I would talk to his, his doctor, and I said, is there something else you can give him? Is there like, a, can you lower the dosage, whatever it was? He would say, well, just give him, just give him the medicine. I go, he's not eating. He needs to eat. And so what happened was, you know, sometimes these flukish things occur where in his case, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the heat on this and say, I had dropped the ball and I forgot to get his refill. And apparently it had been about a week and he had already started school and, um, ended up happening was he told me, well, dad, I haven't taken anything for about a week or two, whatever it was. And I go, how do you feel? He goes, I feel fine. But he was, he had started high school as a different environment. And so at one point I said, well, do you want to try without it? He goes, yeah. Cause he was also eating. So he was doing better. He started to grow a lot. So what ended up happening was, um, he did very well freshman year. He's had good grades through high school. And at one point, you know, what ended up happening was his therapist left wherever the office was and they never really followed up with us. And I tried to catch him, whatever, but he just kind of went on. But I was actually going to, I wasn't sure what his therapist was going to say about the medication, but I was going to say, well, look at his report card. He did this without being medicated. So what, what do you advise in this case? But we never got to that point. So I think it's, there's no shame in the idea of saying a mother, especially should, you know, a parent should trust what they feel about their child. If you think there's something wrong, then get it checked. I mean, if it's nothing, it's nothing. Great. But it's just, you know, if you're going to sit there and say, well, boys will be boys. Well, that's fine. But what if there is something and you don't get them tested because you're just equating it to boys being active and hyper or whatever? I think the biggest thing that we can all agree on is if you feel like if your gut instinct is telling you there may be something going on, there's one nothing wrong with getting checked. Because it's like you said, Min, it's better to know. Um, we're going through that again with my younger son because he started to show the rigidity, definitely. Um, he's shown that for a while, but he was definitely a lot more social, it seemed like. His speech is also delayed, but somehow in the last month or so it's picked up. He has started speech therapy um, last week. And from the time he was evaluated to even now, his articulation still needs work, but he's definitely a lot more social. So I held back with him because like you said, you don't want to jump the gun. Um, but we are going to get him evaluated. But it was, I did have a moment of, oh my God, there's two of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I spent a week, I think I called you that week and I was like crying about it because I was just like, I can't believe I'm going through this again. Um and, you know, it was one of those things where I had to, I kind of, you kind of blame yourself as like, what did I do? 
wrong as a parent. And I had to come to terms with the fact that there's some things that are just completely out of my control. Everyone develops differently. Um, we had to pull him out of TK and put him back in preschool. He's doing a lot better in that environment. So part of it might be we kind of jumped the gun on putting him in TK um, and putting him in a, such a controlled environment and he still needs a lot more. I mean, they say kids should have a lot more play for yeah. longer periods of time. So um, he is doing a lot better. Um, but, you know, get getting checked. Something I would like to say, and Carlos, thank you for your story, but as a medical professional, I should iterate that um, kind of stopping your medications without tapering it off can actually have detrimental effects. So you don't just want to stop it, but definitely do what works for you because sometimes, um, you know, some people really can't handle the side effects of the medications and you have to outweigh the pros and the cons. And there are some people who do need to stay on medication to help them function. Um, But if you find yourself functioning less then definitely talk to your doctor, let's taper off the medication and definitely, okay, we're going to, I want to stop this and let them know, I, you know, be strong in your opinions and say, if you really feel like you don't need it um, and you can do the, your daily tasks without it, then definitely, you know, talk to your doctor. Don't just stop the medications without talking to them. Um, but definitely find also a therapist. It's hard with insurance and I'm aware that some people are very limited But if there is a possibility, find someone who you're comfortable with and actually listens to you, um, you as a parent and as your child. um, There are different types of ABA services. So what James had gone through was actually more social interactive play type play-based therapy. So they would create scenarios. Um, They would, one of the things they would do was play a game and pretend to lose and kind of model that it's okay to lose, um, things like that. So definitely find what works for you, I think. And um, if there's something not working, also go with your gut instinct, but don't just kind of cut things out of the equation, have that communication. And if you're really not communicating, try to find another provider before you stop everything. But it sounds like Jabril's doing so much better. He is. And, and you know, the process with students, even if, if the, you have students that are on ADHD medications, at a certain point in, I'm just speaking through education, you know, as they grow older, as they go from elementary to intermediate to high school and to college, you start seeing that those um, ADHD signs, you know, or ADD signs or symptoms kind of taper off because they're more focused on what they're interested in, you know, versus having to be uh, required to learn all these different subjects and all these different things. So I think that plays a part in him, you know, progressing um, and doing well in terms of his communication with with people. His he's keeping his grades up because he's actually doing things that he's 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 getting to ch- select most of his classes on what he wants to you know on what he wants to do in high school and when he goes to college or whatever he wants to do after that is going to be focused on his interests. So. 
with students that, you know, are on medication, you'll see that they will gradually reduce or taper out, phase out of that medication because they're more focused on what their interest is. And um, so speaking of being in high school and in school, is there anyone in the school, does the school help provide services for him? And do they, how, how well do they work with him in terms of academics? Like how much do they accommodate um, maybe some of his weaknesses? Well, um, it's a Catholic high school within the diocese that we are limited to certain type of resources. But as a high school, you get more uh, support than you would, I guess. Well, I can only speak for the school that he's at. And he's already had a history with the um, the resource teacher because she used to be the resource teacher at his elementary school. So he, there's a relationship there, which helped a lot. So he wouldn't have had to start over and having to get to know someone and being able to talk to the person. Um, they also have um, a counselor there as well, which he had previously also no knew <laughs> so it worked out really it worked well out. but let's just say if a student that came in without a relationship those resources are there for them um they're they're wonderful um uh, professionals that do a great job with the students the accommodations are provided for those kids that need those accommodations based off of whatever plan that they have at either a district level or a school level. Um, you know, so it's it's pretty much it, it depends on it, in a Catholic school setting. It really depends on what the each school is different. You know, it's a smaller school, so that plays a huge part. We we intentionally chose that school for him for that reason, because we knew that he would be more successful in a smaller uh, learning mm -hmm. environment. Uh, and it, it really showed it really paid off, you know, so he really wanted to go to this other Catholic school that is the largest in Tucson. And we gave him an opportunity to, to attend their open house with all the schools and for him to see himself, to be able to experience himself. Okay. This is what it's going to be like. How do you think you're going to handle that oh, in kids. that situation? So I think, uh, without us having to say you're going to this school, he made that decision. made that decision to yeah okay, it it was too much for him. Obviously, the diocese in Tucson has their own way of doing things. There are times though that um, they're not always available. The Archdiocese of Los Angeles, I don't know, I haven't looked into the whole diocese. Um, but his, James's school is actually very accommodating of whatever resources we could bring in ourselves, but they didn't actually have the resources for us available. Um, so definitely I think, um, tr doing your research and finding out what works for your family, I think is, and you definitely address that issue that you found what works for him and you getting to know your child and knowing what can work for them and knowing um, what resources each facility can provide for your child, I think is very important. So um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah. Just to piggyback on what you were just saying is that's something that I would definitely, um, you know, would say to parents that, that have a special needs child is, 
focus on what would be a good fit for your child, a good fit school, um, whatever program that they have to offer um, versus having to go to a school that, you know, you want your child to go to because I went to that school. You know, you, you have to do your research and ask questions. Um, schedule shadow days with your child. Some great advice right there. Um, Carlos, do you have anything to add? Um, I think there's also the aspect of listening to them and letting them tell you how they're feeling. Um, there were some, he loves music and whether it was high school or whether even when he was becoming a teenager, he was very anxious about the idea. Just the idea of being a teenager, um, scared him and he was afraid of change. And so a lot of the music he likes is stuff I introduced him to. And in some cases it's stuff I like, and he kind of took it and went further as far as his love for it. So what I would do is I would try to find things that I felt were, would be meaningful to him to help get, help him get through that anxiety. So like there was a particular song that I, he didn't really know too much about it, but one of his favorite musicians had wrote it on a solo project. And it was a song actually about being afraid of change, being terrified actually of change. And so I, I said, why don't you listen to this? And then let's talk about it when you're ready, which we did. I tried to communicate to him on terms that he understands or using something that I know he really loves. And then um, when there were opportunities for him to flourish, because see, what's interesting about his story is he was at the school she used to work at. So she got to see a lot of the interactions. So like, for example, when I said, yeah, go ahead and get him tested. What happened was when he was in the fourth grade, I don't remember why, but for some reason I was out of work early and I spent a couple of hours at the school with his class. I had not seen him interact with his class in about two or three years at that point. And I really saw something different. I can't explain what it was, but just because the class was actually, they went to more than one place during the day. And I was just watching him with his classmates and I was, I could see there was something. So I said, you know what? There is something. I see it now because I've been here. You had the opportunity to see it. So I get it. When he got admitted to his high school, because, you know, the Diocese of Tucson is a lot smaller than a lot of other dioceses. So all the teachers, whatever, we all know each other. So about three months later, I already knew the principal and the other administrators at the school. They actually told me they had openings and they pretty much offered me a job. Jabril was already going to go to school there. So I met with them. We had a talk and, and you know, a lot of a lot of things came into play. But, you know, I even talked to him about it. I go, well, how would you feel about that? You know, I don't want to do this if it's going to make you uncomfortable. And he said, I, I think it would be great, especially when out of the blue, instead of just teaching religion, they go, well, we want you to teach percussion because I'm a drummer as well. So he ended up being in the class. And mind you, because he likes to keep to himself, he doesn't, he would play on my electronic drum set in the garage with his headphones. So I could hear the pads going. I couldn't watch him because if I opened the door, he would stop. So the first time I ever saw him play was in class. And I think he more or less tolerated it because he had to, but he volunteered to play something and he blew the class away. People did not realize, I didn't know he was that good. You know, all of the stuff he did was on his own. I mean, I was taking lessons in third grade through college. But the thing that really helped him a lot sophomore year was when I, I had captains. And 
I decided to just go ahead and keep the same two captains I had the year before. I just thought it was easier. We had a lot of new kids. So I thought, well, it'll just be easier. Those two actually said, well, Jabril's been here just as long as us. They asked me, could we have three? And I was really surprised because they wanted him to be one of the captains. So I talked to him about it and he agreed to do it. And so what happened was he understood the role of a captain and he took the initiative to do things that show leadership. So that's helped a lot. The other good thing is that I think the smaller environment helped him a lot because a lot of teachers would come to me at lunchtime or outside of class to tell me things he would do in class. I think the most amazing thing was you know, when he took a health class freshman year, there was one day that they were talking about mental illness and mental health and different conditions. She said, Jabril raised his hand and he asked to stand up and he explained to the class he had autism and he explained to them what, what he goes through. And then I remember that same school year, I, we have a chapel every day. And um, I asked him, how would you feel if I did a little thing about you or autism during April for Autism Awareness Month? So he thought about it and I said, well, I'll have to talk a little bit about you. He goes, so then he said to me, well, I don't want to be in there. He goes, but I want you to do it because I want them to understand what I go through and the other kids that go through it. So they, the school understood, they let him sit in the office and then, you know, it was, it helped. A lot of the kids opened up to me too, talking about their cousins, their siblings, their um, people they know. And so this generation, a lot of the younger generations, I'm, I see they're more accepting of it than a lot of adults. A lot of adults are still kind of afraid to admit their kid might have something. But the, you know, the hope I have is a lot of the younger kids really, really support these kids. They're very accepting of these kids. So, and at my school where you know, Jabril also attends there, when they see certain kids who are kind of like him, they don't bother them. They understand they're a little different and it's okay. They're okay who they are. So that's kind of nice to see. You're talking about him taking on that leadership role. Do you think that aside from, so how, what was his reaction to being asked to be a co-captain? How much change have you seen since he's, he'd taken that leadership role? He was surprised, but um, you know, right away he said, well, if I do this, I, I have to do more. So Besides, he's actually, like, he was sick the last few weeks, and we performed at, uh, they call it Candidates Day. It's kind of like open house for eighth graders. And he was already getting better, but I had asked him, I go, well, are you okay? He goes, well, I need to be here. I, I have to help, you know, represent the percussionists to the eighth graders. And then um, he's volunteered in class to help tutor kids who because they're, they're different levels. We have some kids who are beginners. So there's some that are different levels. So he's taken time to tutor them, to show them how to do things and to kind of assist them with just, you know, here's how you play it this way is a different way to do it. So he's, he's been, and then also just the fact that he's more familiar with some of those kids. So he has opened up more to them. Like you see him actually walk into class and actually engage with some of them. There's one boy I've seen him talk to a lot more besides drumming. They, as, as he's talked to him more, they have a lot of similar interests. And so um, I've seen him really engage him as he walks in the classroom. You know, that doesn't wait for him to talk to him. So um, that's helped a lot too. But I mean, he still prefers to keep to himself socially. And, and the thing that people have to understand, and sometimes I think it's more about, I worry about him. Cause I'll look at the other kids. I see them interacting and joking around and playing. They're being typical teenagers. And you know, when he says to me, dad, I'm fine. I'm okay. I just like to sit in the corner and read my books or I just want to keep to myself. I want to break from class. I think like you had talked earlier about, you know, what did I do? Whatever. Parents have to understand it's not about you. 
It's not about what you did wrong and their situation. It's not about you. It's, it's no different than parents who you want to have your kid become the greatest baseball player in the world because you like baseball. What if they don't like baseball? It's not about you. It's when you, once you have kids, it's about your kids. It's not about you anymore. One thing I would like to kind of point out, because you talk about um, Jabril's um, sense of responsibility and commitment. I mean, it's helped him in that leadership role. But I think one of the key things that I've seen from the both of you, because you talk about men a lot about the things that she does. And I, I've known you long enough to know that when you're committed to something, you really do it. I think um, modeling for your children also in the behaviors and instilling these kinds of values in them can really help them no matter what kind of, um, you know, whether it's autism or ADHD or whatever. I think it, the fact that he's seen that in the both of you really um, helped him. So when he took on this role, he really was committed to it because he's seen that type of commitment in the both of you. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, so one of the other things that I want to address, and I was speaking to someone who was actually a special ed teacher, and not just with autism, but all kinds of different behavioral issues, is that sometimes with parents, um, they kind of coddle as well. They want to keep protecting. And I think one of the issues is with that is whether they have, like with autism, they process differently, but it doesn't take away the fact that they're still going to grow up to be an adult. They're still going to grow exactly. up to be a person. So we can't right. keep making excuses for exactly. them either. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think you guys agree with that. I, I'm sure there are moments that you've had to really discipline. Well, our styles are very well. different. I'm I'm more of the authoritarian authoritarian. Is that a right? mom thing? <laughs> I think so. So you know, it comes down to I I'm a planner and I have to think about every scenario possible and I have to think about, you know what, how is this child going to function as an adult because we're not going to be around forever. And there has to be a sense of some accountability. I mean, you want to protect your child, of course, that doesn't go away, but you also want to give them an opportunity to, to really um, take responsibility for, you know, for, for what they, what the, what, what, how they function in life, you know, um, and not to make excuses. So we're not, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not raising our kids to be victims. You know, you're exactly. not a victim. No. You know, this is how you process. This is how you function. How are you going to use it to benefit as a, a way to benefit the way you live? You know, you, you, you have to, how are you, you going to, what tools are you going to use to be able to cope with things that might come up? There's always going to be challenges in life. How are you going to cope with that? Yeah. How are, you, how are you going to have to deal with anxiety, you know, your anxiety, how these are the things that the life skills that, you know, is so important for every child, not just children with special needs. They just have to, you know, find other ways, you know, different ways to function. Yeah. But coddling your kids is not going to do them any favors. No. And that's a conversation, you know, I always have with my mother because she, she, as grand, as a grandparent, you know, grandparents love grandparents to spoil their grandchildren. Love to do that. <laughs> she's coming up with all these excuses. Oh, he's only, you know, when he was little, he's only four. And then we, and then we hear, oh, he's only eight. 
now we're here. He's only 16. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> when is he not only, you know? So does Jabril ever talk to you about his future plans? You know, I say, well, you need to start thinking about this. But I don't sit there and say, you know, I want a decision by tomorrow. I will let him know this is what's going to happen. This is what's going on in the world you live in. You need to start thinking about it. And when he's ready, he'll talk about it. And he will. Lately, he's been engaging me more. We've been having these great conversations in the car on the way from school about everything. So he does think about it. So, you know, like sometimes, like when she was saying earlier, there's things that you want to pull your hair out over. Like, I, you know, the funny thing about him is there'll be a movie that he really wants to see. I will open up my laptop. I will show him the trailer. I go, doesn't that look cool? I can't wait to see it. I'll let you know. And it's almost like he says it because he thinks, well, he, that's how he thinks. We know we're going to go see it. You know you want to see it. But it's just he has to think about it. And that's okay. You know, you just have to learn. It's almost like when you have a relative and they're the one that you know when something happens, they're the one that's going to fly off the deep end. What does everyone in the family do? You prepare for it. Everyone gets this person ready for it. You learn how to deal with that person. It may not be autism, but you know how they're going to react. Dealing with an autistic child or an autistic person is no different. Everyone knows how they're going to react. You just deal with it. Again, it's not about you. Of course not. And so definitely, I think um, some of the key things that we talked about, first of all, from the beginning, admitting that there's an issue and addressing the issue, but also not using that issue as to victimize the person, but just give them the tools that they need in order to be able to survive life and um, what comes at them. So um, we've had an awesome conversation and I really wish we had more time to talk about this because I really I'm really loving this conversation but both your experience and our experience we had different experiences because I started a lot younger than you did and you know Jabril was more aware um, when you guys were getting him tested whereas James he still doesn't know that he has any diagnosis he's six Right. And I'm like, how do you, how would he process that at six? And Carlos has asked me, have you told him? I said, well, he hasn't really processed the fact that he's not. Exactly. It's too premature. Yeah. And so, and so when we were, when he was going through therapy at the time, because his ABA, like I said, was very play-based. I, I didn't call it therapy at that time. I said, you're going to play school. Mm -hmm. And so he said, oh, okay, I'm going to play school. And so he just took it as, oh, it's just another school. Right. Um, so I think when that conversation does arise, I'll have to deal You'll with know it. know when that time comes. Yeah. But at this age, just keep doing what you're doing. And I, I think, you know, like as you're saying, developmentally, he's not going to understand. Yeah. So it's, it's going to create more anxiety than anything else. And, you know, you have to approach it at whatever grade level, age level, the child is, you know. So. Definitely. So, yeah. but thanks, Min. For Thank you. All your insight and all your input and Carlos. and Glad, glad to do it. Okay. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the first part of our autism podcast. We thank Min and Henry, our spouses, for, um, their willingness to join us on this discussion. And we hope that they also offered you some insight on what it's like really as a parent to go through 
raising a child with autism. And uh, Angel and I are actually going to uh, have another podcast, kind of like a part two of this, as her and I just discuss a little of our insights after having this discussion with our spouses and giving it a listen, and then hopefully can add a little more insight to the full discussion we're going to have on autism, both in the first part and then the upcoming second part. So thank you again, and God bless you all.